something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush, uh, Friday interview edition, and I'm here with the winsome and handsome, if I may say so, Miles Gray. You honor me. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I am, although as I see your wonderful beard through the Zoom screen, I'm reminded of my own just paltry, uh, you know, also ran type facial hair that I have. Uh, you got one something day. going on there. It's, you know, it's been a struggle, you know, for me being, you know, on the other side of I'm almost 40 uh, in a few years, okay. but like thinking of how long I've thought, yeah, like I'll probably have a, like some cheek hair by the One time day. I'm in my mid thirties <laughs> and I'm like, I got patches still. It looks good though. You got, uh, you got a nice little stash uh, there. Thank you. Yeah. That's the one thing I can, yeah, that's just the mustache. <laughs> now, so you guys listening may know Miles, if you listen to the Daily Zeitgeist, which is um, kind of our landmark comedy show uh, here at the network when we first got things going really in earnest and you guys are still killing it i oh, mean thanks, how many man. years has it been now it's almost gonna be four it'll be wow four years um wow. in october of every doing day. it every day and then almost two years now of doing it twice a day so it's, oh uh, what do you what is twice a day what's going on with that so we'll do like knew about that well you know because of 
before when it seemed like the news cycle was somewhat manageable during the Trump administration, it was mm -hmm. easy to do a daily show. And then, you know, on the back end of the administration, there was just so much happening every day constantly <laughs> that we would find ourselves in a position to be like, oh, this isn't even going to be in the episode that comes out tomorrow because all this news broke since we recorded. So right. like we'd hit people with like a quick middle of the day update just to see what's trending. Okay. So it's not always heavy, but, you know, just just to make sure we're covering our bases. Wow, that's going the extra mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, in a way, I'm like, I can't believe the amount of episodes that we've done. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is just rife for some AI to then completely recreate who I am, like, <laughs> provided it thousands of hours of recorded audio. I can't imagine, man. I mean, people talk to Josh and I about stuff you should know just twice, or I guess with the shorties now, three times a week um, for all these years. But, like, that's... Twice a week feels like a vacation compared to uh, yeah. once a day and now twice a day. Well, and when we first started back in the, you know, How Stuff Works days, when we were starting yeah. the show, you know, the head of the network, Connell, was, <laughs> he was asking us if we were sure we wanted to do a daily show. It's like, I know. You guys sure? And I get it because on the strength of all the other shows on the network, like that are researched and take so much time to produce, right. we were even like, yeah, huh, right, uh, daily. <laughs> That's a, that is a pretty aggressive tick. But I think with Jack, like, writing daily and, like, sort of moderating Cracked, and for me, like, having worked on daily shows and things like that, I was like, I think we can do it. So we may have also just locked ourselves into a frenetic work pace, but we like it. Well, it works, and it's a funny show, and you're talking about Jack O'Brien, who uh, is co-host, and Jack um, was uh, kind of the first comedy guy at the network. He came over from Cracked.com, which was a great website at least when Jack was running it. I haven't even been on that much since then, to be honest. But I yeah. uh, always had a lot of respect for Jack and what he brought to the network. And and you, man, like, where where did you get your start? Did you start doing, like, sketch or stand-up? What was your uh, beginnings in comedy? Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, improv was my first love. Uh, I started okay. improvising in high school because I had a theater teacher who was like... Hey, where was this? This is in L.A., so yes. Like okay. a true... I'm like the Billie Eilish of podcasting. Wow. You know, like... <laughs> in it you know my mom's a film critic uh my dad is oh, really? an artist yeah so i've so anyway like in high school i started doing improv because i was always just like to do impressions and just be funny and then yeah then i realized oh yeah you can make a career out of that so i was i tried for a while to get into groundlings uh and was doing stuff at ucb for a little bit but before all that like i kind of got to that point where i was like i need a career i couldn't quite rely on comedy being a thing and right. i think that's obviously coming from like a you know having an immigrant mom black father uh -huh. just sort of like try and get jobs that will pay you like consistently right. <laughs> so i was like sure. yeah that, that's cool and then i got into so then i started i became a political consultant and lobbyist for a number of years that's, that's right my, i remember that yeah yeah that was sort of like my my big boy college post-college career and then i uh -huh. soured on politics very quickly i went into it a little overly idealistic and i realized what it was and then so i became uh yeah a little bit more radicalized after that and then from there i actually did more than just comedy like i i think you know in the early youtube days i was just very much someone who had like a sketch comedy channel who was like getting yeah. viral hits on funny or die and youtube and uh -huh. things like that and then i realized that's a hard that's, again, not an easy job to turn into consistent income. So I yeah. sort of turned that into a skill I was going to companies with, basically saying, like, hi, I'm one of those people that can make viral content. 
And that was just right. such a buzzword in like the early tens, teens, where it was oh, like, totally. oh, viral, viral. Yeah, yeah, this is good. He knows and, how to do that. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I'd be like, check out my links to these nonsensical comedy videos that have plenty of views <laughs> to back up my claims. And so I started working in radio and making like uh, content for radio stations. And then I yeah. worked at YouTube for a second and then Playboy and then Condé Nast. And then, uh, and then Jack, after a while, he was, I, I'd met him because my uh, fiance worked at Cracked. So I'd met him uh-huh. a few times there. And he actually had me um, years ago audition to co-host a, a podcast with Robert Evans. And, oh, cool. And then at the time, it just didn't work out. Um, but Jack had always remembered that audition. So then when he started thinking of this idea, he came back to me and said, hey, I know you're working at Condé, but like, would you want to do a podcast? And I was like, it's the call I've been waiting for. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it, and now I think doing this daily show is like a true intersection of like all of my past work experience and like interests. So yeah, I couldn't be luckier. That's awesome. So Robert Evans is who uh, also from our network, yeah, behind the bastards, great great show, which um, got really popular, which was cool. Robert's awesome. I need to have Robert on and Jack. Jack, I've been holding Pulp Fiction for Jack for you know three years now <laughs> and we've tried it a couple of times when i was in la i always wanted to do it in person but now i think we've all gotten so used to right. this, the zoom thing that uh i'm not afraid to do these anymore i used to like if it's not in person then you know i didn't want to talk about yeah. it yeah isn't that but it's wild how much that's changed yeah. like i I, know. I was really we were really concerned too, especially for comedy podcasts like yeah you, the energy in the room is so important totally. like the timing of your responses but I think like everyone got like a built-in internet delay in their head or something to like yeah not immediately jump beat. in or you know do things like that. So yeah, which I just did to you. <laughs> I know, which is perfect. <laughs> Look, we're great still human, illustrative. Baby. <laughs> well, you got a great voice, so it doesn't surprise me that you worked in radio some. But I'd love to know a little bit more about what you did in politics. It's really interesting. Oh man, uh, yeah. So I I started off just or, like as like an organizer. Um, okay, and. At a certain point, a friend of mine asked if I wanted to help organize for a campaign around renewable energy. And I was like, sure, Mm -hmm. I think that's great. It was for a ballot proposition in California. And it was like very aggressive at the time, like asking for like over 50% of our fuel mix to come from renewable. So it was like a long shot. But for me, it felt like one of those things. I'm like, but this is where we need to be. And that campaign went well enough that um, that was my first sort of insight into how things work because this campaign i thought was just about people of goodwill coming together to demand the state change (laughs) the energy mix and then this consulting firm reaches out to me and says hey we'd like to hire you you did a great job on this other campaign that we Uh were behind and i was like oh huh and then you were behind (laughs) yeah and i was like what do you mean it's like oh yeah so we have these investors and then you realize oh right so this ballot proposition was for people who we're basically waiting for if this were to pass into law, immediately begin uh-huh. permitting the land to like beat everyone to the punch for renewables yeah. to get those contracts. So wow. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I'm like, well, at least it's a good cause because it's renewable. Sure. So like it's not like, you know, totally messed up. And then from there, um, so I accepted the job because this was, you know, this was 2008. There's uh-huh. just absolutely, yeah. and I just got out of college. I'm walking through like a desert landscape in terms of like viable employment. And this was like a true shot to have like some kind of professional white collar middle class lifestyle in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And so I took it and yeah, very quickly 
uh, I began to see like the game and how consulting works, whether that was, you know, doing things in service of like billionaires who Mm -hmm. had progressive agendas. But in the end of the day, like, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. We're going to make sure this this certain politician gets reelected. And then you're like, oh, that's right, because they're on a committee that directly relates to the industry of one of our clients. And by making sure that they know that this massive donor is part of their like sort of covert reelection effort, that helps Mm -hmm. keep the heat off of their industry. Right. If someone proposes, let's say, an investigation into how Pell Grants work or something like that. Holy shit. So how how, what, what is your cynicism level these days? With politics, I mean, can oh, you even yeah. I mean, I'm I'm completely <laughs> disillusioned. I mean, I know I I worked in democratic politics enough to see that even when you're talking about things that are they poll well, right? There are few people who are actually there to advocate for what that means on the other side of it. Like it's renewable energies with the caveat of, well, I'm going to make all the money off of it when it happens, right. or I want this progressive politician reelected not because they're going to do something for working people but because mm-hmm. they're going to protect my near monopoly on this industry um wow. and then and i became really cynical because after a while you know you know there's the dark money aspects and mm-hmm. using these you know there's a whole methodology that um dark money groups use to use different kinds of nonprofit groups like 501c3s and c4s and certain ones right. don't have to reveal who their donor who their donors are and that's those are so those are the groups that come out with very like nebulous names like um yeah. you know uh, uh american families for progress uh-huh. or something right. yeah. and really well, it's paid by great. one guy and <laughs> right. you're out there saying like preaching this very vague mission statement so it seems like that but you're uh-huh. there on behalf of some other person and so once you see sort of the just sort of the the power dynamics of it and who stands to mm-hmm. win and lose you know, I was going in on very optimistic. Obama had just been elected the first black yeah. president. I'm like, wow, this is progress. Like, I'm really glad to be part of this. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, but, you know, this was like when Obamacare was coming up. We were doing a lot of research to try and talk about, like, the benefits of it and how this could be really monumental for expanding healthcare. And then pretty soon, like, you saw things get chipped away and you see people get seats at the table that should absolutely not have them. And right. I was like, oh, OK, whatever. Wow. So, yeah. How, how do you approach and, you know, uh, you don't have to get too personal, but how do you approach your your vote these days? Like when you have seen sort of the underbelly and that and the way it works, like, can you even yeah. I mean, get, I'm, in, like excited? No. Um, <laughs> and because I think, you know, especially right now, being black and Asian in this country. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> talk about a lack of change that's takes into account what the experience is or of the experiences are of of us for uh-huh. any given group and the, the glacial pace um that change occurs in because unfortunately the people who have the seats at the table they're not the the things that we're talking about aren't existential threats to them so right. we're moving at a we're moving at a level of urgency for something like it's like it's the same with climate change. We have a people like octogenarians who are like, I don't know, I'm not going to see the worst of it. So right. why would they? They're not incentivized to move quickly or um, optimistically on how to change things. Um, so I mean, I'm I'm really open on the show about how I feel, and I always try yeah. and I always relate my own experiences in politics to why I believe a certain thing or why mm-hmm. I'm less optimistic about a given candidate. You know, 
uh, I think for certain people, progressives, leftists, they may look at Biden as just like, you know, it's like, what do you do? Do you hold your nose? Do you vote for this? And given some of the, the other uh, political fallouts that have occurred over the last hundred days, um, right. you'd, you'd hope for a little bit better than what we're seeing. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, I think it's just one of those things until enough, a plurality of people are able, either A, able to see just how we lose in this like two party system um, right. or proposing some real, you know, revolutionary change in terms of how we conduct our governance in this country. I think this is what we're left with. And you hope that the words of activists and the news and people being a little more open minded about what the realities are of this country can at least help create like a very organic grassroots groundswell around this. But right. Yeah, it's um, but it's it's heartening to see things slowly melt away over time. <laughs> yeah. So like if you were to talk to someone who's interested in getting into politics, would you say, geez, don't do it? It's a, a, a cesspool or no, would you say just uh, stay local and I would to make say, change? Honestly, I would I, I've, I've talked about this a lot and I have a few friends who are work at a state level, municipal level and federal level in bureaucracy. Yeah. And they're all like, we need smarter people to work in bureaucracy. Right. Um, because I think a lot of people look at, you know, it's like the stars of politics are the elected officials. Right. But the it's like, but the crew, like if it's a movie, the crew is right, the bureaucracy. Right. And if the crew yeah. is lazy and unimaginative, they're not going to mm -hmm. execute on a script you wrote. It's going to come right. out all weird because no one's like, so I would actually encourage people to get involved because I think, but knowing that we need people who are looking at things differently. Very much the established kind of politicians we have now, it's just their focus is once they're in office is just to stay in office. Oh, so boy. So there's not a lot you of risk kidding, taking. Man. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just no risk taking at all because yeah. their bottom line is like, ah, well, I want to be the most famous person in my state by right. holding this office. I don't care about what I'm there to do for my constituents. And I think yeah, we, that seems to be a real thing right now yeah. more than ever before. Absolutely. And I think we need more people who are willing to just go into office saying, I'm here to actually, I know what it means for a single parent to yeah. wonder how they're going to take care of their child or if they're going to get tax credits for that or if they need another job or that. And know yeah. that those are real lived experiences of most people and saying, I'm there to actually relieve that stress for someone else rather than, you know, who can I glad hand and collect mm -hmm. donors for just to stay in for another couple of years. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I know like both sides are, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a liberal progressive too, and, and both sides have plenty of issues, but it's really hard not to look at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I, I read a thing the other day where they were talking about the fact that basically like people like her are, they're, they're, she's brand building. She's not mm -hmm. interested at all in, in constituents and doing anything for them or anything for the country even no it's just building her brand as someone who can be a, a megaphone for owning libs and and what kind of book deal am i going to get right. in the, at the end of the day yeah and i think it's like the same yeah it, it's it's like uh when you see people on reality shows and you're like right. whoa it's like well they're trying to get a deal after this yes. show you know they're exactly. trying to get their influencer the account going when they leave right. the bachelor you know what I mean? But like, that's politics now. Yeah. And I think it's seeped uh, into every level where we don't have people who are there acting in good faith because they're interested yeah. in outcomes for their constituents. It's right. like, like we say in politics, it's 
they call it flippantly, it's Hollywood for ugly people. Um, and oh, wow. it's the same <laughs> level of egocentricity wow. and narcissism involved, but it's, it's just like even worse because like, no, you guys are actually there to like help people, but you're right here to mudsling and you know, good for her. She you know, she, her father gave her a whole business that she could inherit and pretend she created her own business right. or whatever. And that's par for the course for this place. Oh boy. Well, that was depressing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, first of all, I want to talk about your mom real quick again. Um, yeah. Where where's she from? What's your background? My mom's Japanese, so she okay. she she's from Japan. Uh, she was born uh -huh. in Niigata, which is on the west coast of Japan, mm. and she moved here, you know, like in the seventies. Um, my dad. But you said she's a film critic. Yeah, yeah. So she started off as a translator, and okay. and like for a while, she was like that translator in Japan, like. Queen uh -huh. would come to Japan and like my like there's like footage of my mom like at their press conference like translating oh, cool. or like Rick James like uh -huh. <laughs> she's like she's lived Bob Marley like for a while wow. if you came to Japan my mom and like there's like a few other people who like had this intersection of knowing like the promotional companies that were bringing the yeah. acts there or the TV media outlets and then people who were uh -huh. sort of like 
Western enough to be able to like hang and be a cool translator. And that was my mom right. for a while. That's really and, interesting. Yeah. And then someone said like, hey, you know, there's an opportunity at this magazine, you know, for they need someone in L.A. Mm-hmm. to be a correspondent um, who can essentially interview people for the movie industry and like but then report back in Japanese about the American film industry. And my mom was kind of already doing some translation stuff. And she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try that out. And she's been. What was the magazine? It's called Roadshow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, you know, it was Japan's like, t- prim- it's like Entertainment Weekly of Japan. Right. Like, it's like the one film magazine. Uh, and then eventually like it went out of print, like many things did and went purely sure. digital. Um, and so, yeah. And then, and she's also a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is getting a lot right. of uh, heat at the moment. Yeah, um, but also like I, I, I have an interesting perspective into that too because for all of the focus on this organization, it it also allows like Hollywood to turn a blind eye to its own transgressions in terms of not being a very inclusive industry, and right. I find it odd to come after a group of foreign journal. These aren't um, this isn't an American <laughs> body of journalists. Yeah, it's a group of foreigners of immigrants. <laughs> who have uh-huh. come here to talk about the industry and now the criticism, why aren't there any black American people in this thing? Right. It's like, there's not even Americans. <laughs> there's like only a couple. And that's because they're like, yeah. like dual nationality people or bilingual. And uh-huh. I 100% agree that the HFPA could be more inclusive. It absolutely right. needs to be. And I think it's imperative that they help, like, you know, in France or other countries that have large, you know, diasporic populations that they could say, yeah, we want to bring more black French journalists out here. But yeah. unfortunately, the membership of the HFPA, I think, is a reflection of the print industry in the respective countries where these people represent right. the industry. Um, right. But yeah, anyway, all that to say, uh, she's always, we've always had movies on in my house. Uh, yeah. And she's always had a very critical like tone about movies, which yeah. only made me a little more like aggressive as a kid and be like, this movie sucks. And I couldn't right. explain why, but it's just from osmosis. Um, uh, yeah, what about dad, your dad? He's a, yeah, he's an artist. Just a black guy from LA. My parents met at a, a, a Michael Jackson album release party in the eighties. My dad used to be Michael Jackson's <laughs> personal photographer for like wow. six years. Uh, back when he was black. Um, this was like right. in the late seventies. <laughs> the last video he worked with Michael on was "Beat It," uh-huh. um, but yeah. And so you know, he's a, just an artist, and had always, I think, because he was just a very politically minded, you know, black man in America. Yeah, he always raised me with a very, like, very sober analysis of what the news was, or what was happening, mm-hmm. or why things were happening. And I remember like one of the first times as a kid, I saw like an unhoused person. I said, like, what, how come some people like don't like they have to live like by the freeway? He said, he said, Ronald Reagan. That was his. Oh, wow. He said, oh, that's because Ronald Reagan. And I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm six years old. I have no, I don't know what to do with that, (laughs) but that's how he'd respond to me. And then later on, I'm like, oh, wow. He was giving me the adult answer. Yeah. But I'm like. Thanks for that distilled uh, progressive answer, Dad. <laughs> That's really cool, man. And it's funny now that like I know some of this background. So much of what I hear on uh, from you on the show makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it, it made sense anyway because I knew you were a smart guy who who knew a lot about politics and knew a, and was funny. So like I always knew that always came through as as Miles. But I guess I just this feels like it's just DNA. It, oh yeah you know. i mean even further back like 
you know, my mom's dad was a German, was a professor of German philosophy in Japan. And he was oh, like wow. one of the foremost experts of like Goethe's uh, philosophy. And he, during World War II, the Japanese government was like relying on, not him, but a few other Japanese people who understood German culture to understand yeah. the Nazis um, because of the Axis, you know, the relationship there of like, you know, what do Germans mean if they're saying this? Like, cause you know, when right. Japanese people speak, it's like they're, the intent of language is a little bit different and culturally right. different, um, but similar in uh, many ways too. Um, so yeah, like everyone's kind of been a uh, out there kind of, yeah, I've, I've been having, I've been lucky enough to have out there vibes uh, running through yeah. my veins. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. I'm always a little, I mean, uh, I'm not slagging my family or anything, but I'm always a little jealous when I hear about these people that had these really interesting childhoods and my parents were both teachers and it's very admirable yeah, they were public school teachers and stuff, so I'm not knocking it, but it's not as exciting as translating for Bob Marley or hanging out. Yeah, I mean, I wish it, beat it record release party. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, it's different. But hey, I wasn't there, so you know, you know. But I will say, Iggy Pop did almost kill my dad. So there's that. Oh, is there a story there that you can tell? Yeah, they were roommates, and uh, what he was, dude. This Jim, as he, you know, as he's known, uh, uh -huh. was just my. So my dad's friend. He was like the connective tissue between him and Iggy Pop. And my dad had like this room available in this apartment that he had. And he's uh -huh. like, hey, this guy, Jim, he's like, you know him, blah, blah, blah. He's like, he just needs a place to stay for like a month and he's going to move right. out or whatever. And <laughs> he's, he's not into wearing shirts. I hope yeah, that's not an issue. And he's like, he might be, you know, cooking heroin on your stove. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But my dad, he essentially, he was getting ready to do a photo shoot and he had to like, you know, he was like asleep early. And then I guess... Jim is in the house and he was like trying to cook something like turn mm. the stove on and the the pilot light didn't click on and so he just left the gas running in the house oh, and then my dad like woke up in the middle of the night to pee or something and he just like was like oh my it smells like gas in here and runs down and realizes like the stove's on he's like turning it off and then you know Jim's like hey what's going on he's like dude he left the stove on he's like what and he's like trying to in his stupor, trying to get up and light a cigarette. Oh my god! And my dad would like fly across the room. He's like, no. <laughs> um, so you know, I may have been, I could have been, not even here. Uh, were it for wow. a fateful <laughs> lighter yeah. strike, blown up by Iggy Pop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have kids now? No, 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 not okay. yet. I think that's that. That'll be on the horizon. You know, I feel like right. we got a little bit of living to do yet. Sure, but um. Yeah, that's 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 on the horizon. Got it. We're getting married uh, in a little bit, so. Oh, that's great. Step man. one. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. I see that sweet Rickenbacker bass in the background. I didn't yeah. know. Uh, you play, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I grew up playing trumpet actually because I was named uh -huh. after Miles Davis, a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> and I always liked music, and I I grew up playing trumpet, but for a while, trumpet wasn't like cool in the like after the ska era died out. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I didn't really have much to play anymore. Like I was, I played in a lot of jazz ensembles and marching bands mm -hmm. as a kid and orchestras. And then Guitar Hero came out and I got so good at Guitar Hero. <laughs> I was like, I should probably try a stringed instrument. Right. And then I, and just because my dad had a loose bass somewhere like in our garage and I just uh -huh. like, I picked that up and I couldn't, I just really loved playing bass and that turned into like making beats and things like that. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. Do you play with a, with a band or anything right now? Or? Yeah. I was in a band for a little bit, uh, actually for a few years, um, up until like a couple years ago. 
And then, mm -hmm. yeah, just kind of, it was sort of a hobby where everyone kind of had a job. And yeah. then, yeah, it kind of sort of it ran its course at that time. But now I've kind of come back to just making music on my computer because I music is like a, such a huge part of my life. Yeah. And I don't probably, I don't talk about that as much on podcasts, but it's been something I've done since I was a child. And I've always made music on my computer, not to like release out mm -hmm. there. It's like someone who like journals or something. I just do that yeah. with like making like music loops and things. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Who are you listening to these days? You got some good recs? Oh, man. I could go. I mean, I love River Tiber. Um, River Tiber is a great Canadian producer, artist. Um, I don't know if you've heard that group, Bad, Bad, Not Good. Um, no, I'm so like out oh, of the so loop now. Like, Bad, so Bad, I'm Not Good is, is like this Canadian jazz, funk, soul, like new jazz kind of group. Um, uh -huh. And they're so funky. And like, they're so good on their instruments. And like, they have like more minimal compositions, but they're so solid and river tiber collaborates with them and he has his own solo stuff that's really good and then the other band i'll always tell people about is hiatus coyote um they're one All of right. my favorite bands from australia and i you know there's plenty of like artists that i like that are solo but i like to recommend like bands that really make me as a musician like envious because i'm like oh yeah. man they're so good and like they're so solid on their instruments and like they're so good at comp like their compositions um, and yeah, Hiatus Coyote is just one of those bands that is very like avant-garde, but funky and still mm -hmm. manages to be like familiar at the same time. So yeah. That's amazing. So I just wrote all those down. I'll check those out. That's the thing that I, uh, performing live, obviously I've missed a lot, but just going to, uh, I finally went to a baseball game last night. So I got mm. a sporting event under my belt, yeah. but seeing music, I think, uh, my, my friend and I went, uh, and saw Bonnie Prince Billy right before the shutdown. And then the last show I saw in Atlanta, uh, my wife and I went to Michael Kiwanuka oh, nice. a couple of weeks before it shut down. And um, it's just, it's been a such a hole in my life. Yeah. And I cannot wait to get back and see some bands again. I know. I it's think I'm just going to be sobbing, like just um, so overcome. Yeah. Like if, especially if it's a band I want to see too. Like, I know. Cause I'll go to any show at this point. Cause I just do want to see live yeah, right. music. But if there's like, <laughs> if I was me like, if I saw like, you know, Portis head right now, I think they'd have to take right. me out in an, like in an ambulance. I'd just be like, hey. yeah. <laughs> I've had some emotions lately with some experiences that out of nowhere that I've, like I, my wife and I went to dinner for the first time the other night and sat outside at this place and uh, I was, I started fucking crying, man. And yeah. I was like, what is going on? And, and I'm an emotional guy anyway, but I, I didn't anticipate that coming and it just started happening. I was like, all right, feel the feelings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'd spent 49 years doing stuff like this and one year off and it, it was a big deal. Yeah, no, seriously. And it, 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 it really kind of brings things back into focus those moments because yeah, for the yeah. first time I went out to eat too and you know, over a year, uh -huh. And I couldn't believe it. It felt surreal, but then you're sort of like, you kind of reflect on the year and like people that right. you've lost and just the, all the pain yeah. and things. And yeah, I, I was sort of in the same moment where I just, I, I cheersed and it took me like a good eight seconds before I sipped my drink. Cause I was just like, cause you of, had that lump. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, a nice experience nonetheless. That's good, man. Well, I can't wait to get back out to LA again and uh, yeah, to come see you guys for sure. That'd be a lot of fun. So, you picked mall rats after all this highfalutin talk about <laughs> politics and uh, film, film critic mom and artist hey, father. Hey, got to you come at me with fucking mall rats. 
uh, I was surprised by your pick a little bit. Um, and I guess I'll just go ahead and kick it off by saying that I was a very, very big Kevin Smith fan early on. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, remember seeing Clerks in college at the theater, and um, it was it was unlike anything I, I had seen before, and it really stuck a struck a chord with me because it was clearly super low budge, made by somebody like me. Uh, somebody actually even looked like me <laughs> and, uh, I, I just, I, I sort of fell in love with the aesthetic and his, his world building of these sort of weirdos that were clearly just his friends, yeah. clearly just writing these movies to sort of in a Richard Linklater way to kind of like, there are two guys who always wrote for themselves and not for characters. It's like every character is just saying Kevin Smith stuff. Oh, one hundred. Yeah, there's no way to discern who's saying <laughs> what because they all this right. most dense dialogue you've ever heard. Uh, and then Mallrats came along, and it was basically like, all right, we're going to give you a lot more money. And he was basically like, I'm going to make the same exact kind of movie. And I, I kind of respected that at the time. I think. Yeah, and he got destroyed for it. Like, he did. Yeah, everyone was, was like, plot. oh boy. They're like, this is your king? The Sundance winner right. with clerks <laughs> just made a nonsense film about people at a mall with the weirdest humor. Like, one of, I think it was Siskel or Ebert, like, just completely Ebert killed it. it. Yeah. And then, like, I mean, everyone did. Yeah. But I read the Ebert review today and it was, uh, he was not too kind. <laughs> yeah. They can see. Well, what's your deal with Kevin Smith and your history here? Kinda I mean, you were obviously younger. Yeah. But I think I, I was always a kid who was punching above their weight with what they read or watched or listened to uh -huh. um, because, you know, like any kid over 10, I was like just such a snob and defining my life based on what I wasn't into. So if everyone is into right. that, I wasn't into that because I'm into this. I'm like, oh, you're not reading the Illuminatus trilogy. Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I am. But yeah, I don't know what I'm reading, but I'm right, right. not going to read this other thing. Um and so Clerks was like one of those things where like an older family friend showed it to me. And because I thought they were so cool, uh, by osmosis, I was like, okay, Clerks is cool. Yeah. And then like as I got like around 13, Clerks made a little more sense. And then I was like, okay, like I'm kind of fully into the View Askew, View Askew universe, uh, as they used to call it back right. in the day. And I like loved the idea of him being so down for Jersey because me being from the San Fernando Valley, I've, yeah. I've always felt an affinity. Like, you know, New Yorkers look at Jersey like it's like New Jersey, right. you know, like the bridge and tunnel people like, ah, get out of here type thing. Much in the same way, like people in L.A., like there's a snobbery of looking down at the San Fernando Valley. Um, sure. and I'm always like, nah, like, okay, I'm with you. I like this, the Jersey, you know, the Jersey trilogy or whatever he was building at the time. Yeah. And, and then mall rats, I think really resonated because mall culture was just so big Sure. for me in the San Fernando Valley too. It's like oh, yeah. malls are where, where it was. And I, I was at malls, malls constantly. And yeah. so this idea of like the Kevin Smith treatment of like losers at a mall at the time, I was like, this is perfect. This is yeah. exactly who I am. And like, they're using, you know, vocabulary that like I will parrot incorrectly right. constantly after this. And I think that was the appeal of a Kevin Smith film was like, for especially someone like my age, it was just like moment to feel like you're just punching above your weight intellectually and like you kind of get yeah. like what he's trying to say. So it that appealed to sort of like the, you know, wannabe adult kid in me at the time. 
Yeah, and I lived in New Jersey post-college um, in 1995. I moved to New Jersey for like four years because my college roommate had a, his family lived there and he was just sort of, his stepdad was this well-to-do out in the sort of rich suburbs of New Jersey mm-hmm. business guy. And they got transferred to Australia for a few years, didn't want to give up their house. So they talked to him and said, hey, would you like to come live in our house and take care of it for a while, live rent-free, keep up the bills and all that stuff? And he said, sure. And I had just graduated. I was like, well, I'll go with you because I got nothing else to do. And I wanted to hang out in New York for the first time in my life a lot. And so I moved to New Jersey, weirdly, out of college. And these two 24-year-olds or whatever were living in this, you know, 3,000 square foot, (laughs) probably even bigger kind of uh, executive uh, not McMansion. It was a, just a nice big house sure. out in the country. And everyone, like people didn't move to this town. This is in central New Jersey in, in Bernardsville. And no one moved there. Right. Like after college, you don't move to Bernardsville, New Jersey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we were a bit of a, a, like the two weirdos. Like I got a job waiting tables. He got a job bartending. And everyone was like, who is this English guy and this Southern kid who like moved <laughs> here? duo, right? Yeah, it was a really weird sort of duo, and um, I re- both of us really kind of fell in love with New Jersey and the people and just sort of the culture and the the weirdos there. And so these movies, Mallrats and Clerks, and the uh, I guess what was the third one? Chasing was Amy. Yeah, Chasing Amy, which is probably the best of the three, actually, if you're mm-hmm. talking about pure like good moviness. Um, we knew these people, and we we knew these guys, and it was he he just. He lived that world because that was his world, and he had no problem really accurately like throwing that on a movie screen. I always really liked that about those early films of his. Yeah, exactly. And there was just the 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 way he would be able to like synthesize these sort of worldviews into like very cutting just one liners and things mm-hmm. were like uh, something that like I was sort of awestruck by because I think just you know I think like a lot of kids who grow up around the industry, like at a certain point, you always dream of like making a movie um, or writing yeah. a film and things like that. And Kevin Smith's like writing sort of helped me think of like, Oh, like you can do things like this. Not that I felt like he was making it easy, but at least inspired uh, me to think like, you know, this guy is just sort of quite literally describing or doing a sensational version of his own personal history or his experiences. And there was something to that, that like was always kind of catching me, but then the totally, then they sort of started getting a little bit less good over time. So I like to focus yeah. on like, you know, the, the good days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fair enough, but they, you know, there is something there. Cause I remember feeling the same way. Like I grew up in a situation where I didn't know that you could make movies as a career. Mm-hmm. Like I, di- I didn't have parents in the industry or on the fringes of the industry. And I just, uh, it was, I was in suburban Atlanta and I just, I didn't know that you could do that. I thought other people made movies and is right. that even a job? And Kevin Smith, I remember just feeling sort of inspired early on. I was like, wait a minute, you can actually scrape together fit 30 grand or whatever right. he spent on clerks and, and make a career out of it. Yeah. And he was, and it's it's more commonplace now, but in nineteen, when did Clerks come out? Was that like ninety three ish or something? Yeah. It, that just wasn't really happening much, so it was a big deal to yeah. get that Miramax deal, and for this regular guy who's like just basically typing out his his musings about Star Wars and <laughs> right. the mall and girls, like 
It's like, this is what all of our friends just sit around and talk about it, and he did it, and is making money at it. Yeah. Because I think the appeal, too, was I remember because everyone's like, why is Clerks in black and white? And it's like, it's because he made it himself. You know, the budget to do it like that. And I was sort of like the mystery, the mysterious quality of like, wait till the idiot asks why this is in black and white. And you get to yeah. slam them with your Kevin Smith knowledge right now. Yeah, I mean, clerks look cool. I, I, yeah. I like the aesthetic. It looked homemade and it was homemade. Yeah. Um, Mallrats was his sort of fast times at Ridgemont High, I think. Uh, yeah. Sort of unabashedly, you know, he he's never been shy about his influences, which is always I've kind of admired, I think. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it's it's funny when I, like, I, this was like one of those tapes I would watch over and over and over again. And yeah. it's funny how, it's probably been 10 years since I saw it last, because I just watched it again just to kind of refresh myself. And it's funny how many lines of dialogue I was still able to like reflexively just say back, like under my really? breath. Yeah. And I was like, uh -huh. oh God, it's just, it's just in there. there. While also like realizing like, this is a very interesting view of like, what the comic book nerd guy trope is, could be, or what, how I look at that with my 21st century view of this too. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also just like these like interesting moments too in the opening credits. Cause you know, huge comic book fan and obviously Jason Lee is in it and yeah. kid of Stanley, but they're like the, they did like sort of comic book treatments of like every person in the film. And I like how they sort of uh -huh. like foresh foreshadowed Ben Affleck as Batman <laughs> Except yeah. his was called Butt Man. And I was like, right. huh, there's, maybe Kevin had an idea of uh, where Ben was going with this. Now, was he related to Stan Lee at all? Yeah, Jason Lee is Stan Lee's son. What? Yeah. Is that true? I believe so. I'm going to just double check that for you, but... Um, but I'm not doubting you. I had just never heard that. Oh, wait, no, no, that. no. He's, I, thought, I think he has some... Maybe not. Let me just make sure... Is he related at nope. all? We should leave all this stuff in. <laughs> no relation. Thank God. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, no. Oh. oh, well. And see, that's funny because that was, I think, uh, that was like a rumor that people said in the pre-internet era of just watching a movie and the last names matched. And you're like, <laughs> that's yeah, that's that's his kid. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> well, I believe you. Yeah. I, and I, I, did, I did too until just now. Well, he was a big comic book, uh, book guy, though, and yeah. it's funny that that like Stanley's part in this movie, you know, he, he has that great scene as the wise sage that uh, Kevin Smith immediately like. It's kind of the one sweet moment in the movie where he's talking about true love, mm -hmm. and then afterward, Kevin Smith sort of just yanks a rug out from under him because it turns out it was a setup for <laughs> yeah, by Jeremy right. London to, just like, to get him yeah. <laughs> like like a weird grift you're like hey man my buddy's not doing too well you mind pumping right. him up for a couple bucks or something <laughs> exactly um but this was it's hard to remember a day where Stan Lee wasn't uh a part of the MCU and making all these great cameos in these movies like because watching it this afternoon I was like oh yeah Stan Lee of course you know he's in every Marvel movie now and we all love Uncle Stan right but like back then he even, I think, felt the need to explain a little bit in the movie who Stanley even was, because among comic book pe people, of course, they knew who he was. Right. But the public at large wouldn't know who this old guy was with the dark reading glasses. I, and it's funny because I didn't really either. And for being someone, I was it, I was really into comic books too, mm -hmm. but I was into the Jim Lee version of X Men. So okay. And for the longest time, I thought Jim Lee and Stanley were brothers. 
uh, because you don't. Do you think <laughs> everyone's related to yeah. Stanley? I had a, I had this very childish uh, way of d- discerning if people were related, where you're like same, the last, same name. last name. <laughs> I remember as a kid asking people if they were related to so and so, because they're like right. even random people I knew that weren't even famous, and uh-huh. they're like, no, I don't know that person. I'm like, oh, weird. You have the are same you, last was, name. Are you related to Spalding Gray? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I wish I was, or not. But no. Well, Co- not. Kobe Bryant is my cousin, so. No, oh, that and see, I'm glad to know I'm honored to be here with. A... <laughs> I'm going to give you shit about that for the rest of your life. Every time I see you, I'm going to like find someone with a last name. Last name, same one. Mine. It's like uh, right. this you. Um, but yeah, like I, I didn't know until like another friend who was really into comics was also like, no, like that's like he invented everything, and I was like, oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, I didn't realize that. And then it really, like, it kind of sent me back into like my nerd, like learning of like, okay, well, I cannot embarrass myself by asking a question like that. I will now ingest some more right. Stan Lee material. And shame some other people. But that's how you learn. I mean, yeah. you don't know shit until some friend tells you about it. Yeah. The um actually was the the process right. for learning in the in the right. 90s for many people. <laughs> and then it turned into a toxic habit decades later. Right. But- Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, let's talk about Jason Lee for a minute. He's an actor that is like, 
I don't think anyone would ever accuse Jason Lee of being some great actor, but there was something about him. He had this charm that yeah. like, I, I was a big fan of my name is Earl. Uh, that show he had, I, I really, really love that show. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of gone away a little bit now, but like, he was just this cool guy. He was a skater and like, he was sponsored and like had a, like a career as a skater and yeah. then started being in these movies. And I don't know, man, there was just something about him that was super likable. I, I saw him at a couple of shows when I lived in LA that like, of like really cool bands that I like. Like I saw him at a granddaddy show and he stood right next to me. I saw him at a flaming lip show. I was like, yeah, man, Jason Lee, like he's a fucking cool dude. Right. And he's just, he's doesn't even try to act. He just gets on screen and is Jason Lee. Yeah. He's, I think that's why, I like, you know, it's funny because him and Ethan Suppley are both together in this. And then later on in My Name is right. Earl, like, I, sure. I wonder if that, I'm sure maybe they they built a relationship there. But yeah, he, yeah, he was sort of effortlessly, he helped sort of embody this, like, personality type or energy of, like, this mid-90s person yeah. that I to thought was really cool. I was like, uh -huh. this dude doesn't give a shit. He sucks. But he's yeah. also like has a razor sharp wit, and like so that helps offset his shittiness um, yeah. in a way that felt like earned because he was smart enough to throw you know insults back, like saying I can't explain myself monosyllabically enough for you to understand and things like yeah. that. I'm like yeah, that's good. Burn him, Jason. But yeah, well, he's a yeah. smart guy. You could tell, and this character Brody was smart. But it's like it's that character that's. That's smart, but is kind of just tossing it away. Like he's using his intelligence to explain the intricacies of the mall. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to to comic effect, but like you get the feeling that if Brody got his shit together, he could kind of do whatever he wanted. He's no dummy. Yeah, exactly. Because even like there's something about even his like, you know, obscene comic book collection because he like lives in like a cave that's about to collapse on him of old comics. Mm -hmm. He just has this like, yeah, the, he 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 just helped embody that snark of the '90s that I think for me as a young kid, like that's the kind of adult I want to be. Which wasn't right. a great example, but at the time I did the 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 I guess relatively <laughs> intelligent version of that. But right. yeah, he's there's. <laughs> I think it's also his like skater cred too, you know, because he legitimately yeah. wasn't he in like one of the early police academy things, like just as like a skating extra. I think. Oh, I don't know. That I, wouldn't surprise me. I think he's like in anyway, but like. He's even like, because I remember just skate culture is also huge too, uh, like in Southern California. So like him and then hearing like, you know, he's like, was like a solid skater. Also yeah. just helped be like, this guy's, he's the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> he does it all. Yeah, totally. Triple threat. <laughs> uh, and, you know, then you have Jeremy London who, uh, you know, God bless him. Jeremy London is not a fine actor. No. And that's the thing I kind of always admired about Kevin Smith, though, is that he was clearly interested in putting people he liked and friends of his in these movies, at least early on. <laughs> so much so. Maybe at the expense of, you know, auditioning a bunch of people. Like, you never felt like early on he cared a lot about the real filmmaking process, except for the writing. Right. And and probably, you know, shooting it with his friends. Yeah. He was never fancy as a director. And and like I said, probably didn't audition a thousand people. He's like, well, let's just use these people because they're fine. Yeah. He's like, honestly, like, get Walt Flanagan and Scott Mosier, like my right. friends, <laughs> to just be in the film. And then you're like, well, now you're part of the established film universe. So, yeah, yeah. I guess we're going to keep bringing you back. Uh, and that totally. kind of became the – because I was – 
a full on Kevin Smith fanboy. Like, yeah, up, like I, I, I would watch every frame and be like, oh, that's Scott Mosier. Oh, he's right. this guy, and he's the <laughs> snowball guy from Clerks and all right. this other stuff. And it was always like very, yeah. There was like a loyalty about it too that it felt like, oh Man, yeah. I wonder if I just got checks to make films. I'm like, look, maybe you're a terrible actor, but I'm. You're you're the guys that I like working with, so let's kind of keep this going. I mean, even like with Jason Mewes, you know, like he's stuck yeah. by Jason Mewes for a really long time and totally. has had like all kinds of ups and downs. And I know Jason man. Mewes it's isn't really the best cool. actor either, but he when he's, he's funny, on, though. he's so on because there's moments <laughs> yeah. even in Mallrats you're like, dude, Jason, yeah. you don't like. It's almost like you're trying to pre mouth the words of the person uh-huh. speaking to you. Like, <laughs> and I'm also like Kevin, like, why don't you direct that a little bit? Um, yeah, but yeah, but there's just like this, I think there was just this really authentic quality about it. I think for a while that just resonated in the nineties so much more than like the polish that we were used to. Well, yeah. And he did something like not many directors had ever done or have even done since, which was create a, a cult of fandom around. I mean, there's like the Tarantinos and stuff that sort of have a little bit of that, but Kevin Smith like really built this world. Like you said, the view askew world, mm-hmm. and he created this fandom around uh, a production team and directing that, like, no one did stuff like that. No. Like, he really, and I don't think he was like, let me build my personal brand either. I think, I think it was a little more pure than that, especially early on. And I think later he probably realized, like, well, wait a minute, I can, and not in a gross way, I can still make money because I can go around and speak and I can just talk about my relationship yeah. with Muse. And, and I have I have built this sort of cult of of fandom that uh, and exploit is such a bad word, but I mean it in the, in the right way. Yeah, to energize like, it. Yeah, energize. I it. think because you know, in a way, like now that you're saying it like that, it's almost like he's just sort of mirroring what he experienced as a comic book fan. You know, oh, yeah. of like because I again I was a fa- his website like yeah. had content. Like I know most people didn't. You know, there would be for a production company, there were like yeah. little clips back when you would like, it would take 40 minutes to download like a 20 megabyte quick totally. time file or like yeah. watch a real video clip on there. And he gave people what they wanted. Yeah. And then he even had like uh, a quiz section to like, so mm-hmm. you could actually test your fandom of like your right. knowledge of the Vuisk <laughs> universe, like all that kind so of stuff. Smart. And that yeah. got me hooked like when I was younger because I wanted to like, to the point where I had done the quiz so many times, I knew all the what all the questions were already, yeah. and it for me created like this like sort of validation or like measure of my devotion to like these films, yes, for whatever it was. And yeah, I mean, oddly enough, like I met him three years ago at Comic Con. Oh, um, really? Cool. Yeah. Well, just like, and it was just off, super off chance. Like he was hosting like the IMDb yacht when they were doing that thing. And he was uh-huh. doing some stuff there, but we were staying in the same hotel. And once we got through like the section, we had to show your card to get to like the guest elevators. Like I had my back turned and he just walked up and I was like, oh, like I see this big hockey jersey wearing full yeah. pulling up. I'm <laughs> Unmistakable. Like, and I saw him and he looked at me and I was like, I just kind of gave him a head nod. And I was like, dude, snoots to the fucking boots, bro. And he's like, Did oh, you? yeah. He's like, oh, oh what's up? Funny. And I was like, I was, I felt so, uh, I'm so glad I took a big fanboy cringe swing like that. Yeah. And it connected and he just sort That's of sweet. reciprocated. And I was like, damn, yeah. that kind of went down exactly how That's I great. hoped it would. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's like, I think there was a lot of influence just from his own fandom as a comic yeah. book guy that I think he really did a good job of finding ways to sort of like see himself as like, not that he's like Stan Lee, but he's like, well, uh-huh. this is the kind of stuff I was into. Maybe that's my responsibility to offer the people that like my stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, he created uh, something much bigger than a, a film director, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and, a, and a resume of movies that he's made which is super smart. But again, I don't think he ever had this like cunning business angle to it early on. I think it was pure. And, and that kind of loyalty that he has, especially to Muse. Yeah. Uh, really speaks to me. Cause that's just a loyalty is a really big deal in my life as yeah. a, as a Pisces, not to get too fruity, but Brian, you know. all my, hey, all my homies are Pisces <laughs> for good reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, March okay. 12th. I got like two friends who are born on the exact, on both on the same day year, March 12th, 85. Oh, cool. Are uh, yeah. you Pisces too? No, I'm a Virgo. Okay. Yeah. I'm March 15th. Okay. All right. Uh, ben Affleck is <laughs> great in this movie. And early on in his career, I was like, this guy, because especially because Days and Confused too, I was like, he plays uh, an asshole better than almost anyone I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He, he was so good at it. Yeah. The best. Uh, like, I hated him. Like I hated Ben, I hated Ben Affleck for a long <laughs> I did time too. because of this. Uh huh. And I was like, when I watched Goodwill Hunting, I'm like, nah, dude, that asshole from Lawrence, no man, right? I'm fucking done with this guy. <laughs> he, he sucks. <laughs> I, I mean, he made a smart move by kind of getting away from that, but he was so good at it. Yeah. And this uh, Shannon, this character, God, I just fucking hated his guts. And even watching it today, I, I wanted to jump through the screen There's and punch him. Nothing redeeming it, like you know. Kevin Smith wrote him as like the, uh, that's why it's kind of interesting too, because it's from Kevin Smith's perspective, obviously Brody is him and TS is him and how he sees him in relation to like the sort of accepted form of like, you know, mainstream masculinity, which is guys who don't read comic books. They Uh dress it, they work at fashionable mail and they're into anal sex or whatever the book is, it's like (laughs) proclivity, but it's just this. I, so it, it was. There were moments like that too, where I, it was more than me just being like, oh, "I hate Shannon." I was like, "Oh right, this is Kevin Smith like writing his view on like, like the world yeah. he was in at the time." And sure. I, then I was like, "Yeah, man, like we have so many Shannons around us like that. Yes, uh, that are just so that would just be our tormentors. Or for a while, you think like, oh, that's what I gotta be to be yeah. like successful or be attractive yeah. or whatever.' And yeah, it's just like they turn that on its head and be like, "This guy sucks." Yeah, and I bet you anything that Kevin Smith today is still that guy, and he's still in the industry, especially sees those douchebags. Oh yeah, and and just has nothing but loathing for those for those guys. I don't think you can like wear a hockey jersey into a serious pitch meeting right. and <laughs> say that you like you actually respect what these people get, like think about you. You're like he he just I think he. He's just like I'm. I'm just doing my thing. I don't care what this other stuff is. It's it's all artificial. I mean, he's always been his own uh, servant to his own self, and that's. Uh, I may not love like a lot of the movies that he made after this, mm-hmm. but I don't know, man. There's this weird admiration that I've always had for him, just sticking to his guns and doing what made him happy, and giving the finger to critics, and just being like, "Listen, this is who I am." I never claimed to be the best filmmaker in the world. <laughs> right. Like I'm, I remember one of his quotes when he made uh, 
Oh, it may have been Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back Mm -hmm. and the budget. He was laughing about how much money he got to make it. He said to make a two hour inside joke with my friends. And that was something I always kind of admired about that was like, you know what? Kevin Smith is just being Kevin Smith. And like he's he's a maverick and and like not in a Robert Altman way, but in a Kevin Smith way. Right. Yeah, it's a it's an there. There's just this rebellious quality to it that. What's what's funny because at a certain point, like I just got really disheartened by the like his output and just kind of I was just like, ah, yeah, the the thrill is a little bit gone after the trilogy, sure. um, and the, yeah, but it's it's like one of those moments where I just completely, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I th- it was like it's like Star Wars where it's like I only like the early trilogy stuff, <laughs> right. I'm not into the other stuff. But yeah, to that point, it's, it's like it's that he wasn't really making stuff. Like I'm never going back and like these are the best movies anyone has ever made. These mm-hmm. are like really great contributions from this creator in this moment in time. And he had a very yeah. specific philosophy, which was yeah, like really much to say. Like I'm gonna make a you know million dollar inside joke. Um, there's something about that that kind of feels you know is missing yeah and you can't like if you're really having an honest conversation about film history you got to throw kevin smith in that conversation at a certain point to represent what he represents right what he represented especially at the time which was really helping to break indie cinema open in a big way yeah uh to make these super talky movies that weren't like Woody Allen talkie because those were always a little highfalutin and intelligent and talking about you know art and philosophy and stuff and he was like I'm gonna do that but I'm gonna talk about Star Wars and and stink palm jokes <laughs> right which yeah. is still a funny part of that movie I think <laughs> even then too like you have to credit him on some level for making comic books cool yeah um, because I didn't I didn't really care about Superman until I heard Kevin Smith was possibly going to be writing a Superman film. Oh, and man, there was a great story. Yeah. And I was like, Whoa, what? And then I'm, that's when I was kind of like, this is int- like, it almost felt like, Oh, maybe his end game is really to get into the comics that he loves because he's really, these, those seem to be offering him those opportunities. Yeah. And when that stuff fell through, I was like, ah, oh, this kind of sucks. But I think that also for him at the time, because he did have cred um, within the industry for him to be focusing on like a comic book film, I think made a sort of, this is like in 96, I remember. Like yeah. when he was talking about these like Superman films that on some level, I, I feel like this, we have to tip our hat to that because he sort oh, yeah. of mainstreamed that um, and really always made comics like like sort of ever present sort of theme throughout his his work. Yeah, I mean, those that the stories around that Nick Cage Superman development are legendary yeah and you know they're part of hollywood lore at this point so many great stories and then you know the since the documentary stuff has come out with some of the behind the scenes stuff with the screen test and the weird suits and mm-hmm. uh, and then kevin smith went on all those speaking tours uh as a really engaging you know yeah you know he he's a guy that like he's a bit of a blowhard in a certain way mm-hmm. but he can also spin a good yarn yeah. And if like good for him, if someone w- will pay twenty five dollars to go sit in an auditorium and listen to Kevin Smith tell stories for two hours, for, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit much. Yeah, that's why it's kind of funny because he is a bit. Of, he's a, sort of a double edged sword because there's there are things about him that just like bother me that I just not fully like. I think 
I used to be like, whatever he does, I love. No questions sure. asked. And yeah, then over I time, like, like, I think I had to kind of be like, oh, yeah, no. And like also the way he kind of ta- like sort of masturbatory like ways he'll speak about his work at times, like sort of felt like not the Kevin I thought I knew. But right. Yeah, I think it's like anyone. Uh, there's always a sort of a, a balance to them. Yeah. I think the, the only thing that annoyed me more later was when he started smoking weed and he acted like he was the first guy who ever smoked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then it got bad. Like, uh, did you ever see that like web series he did about like the dispensary? Uh-huh. Oh, my oh God. no. It's like one of what the latest that? things he did. It is, I, I, I can't even, I don't even know where I saw it, but he'd made this like co- attempt at a workplace comedy about people who worked at a weed dispensary. And really on some was level it on TV or was it like a web show? It was a web show type thing. Yeah. Let me just. Interesting. I'm looking that up right now. Spoilers. No, that's not it. Oh, Hollyweed. Yes. So that was a few years ago. No good. It is. That's when I like it. it those are it's 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 projects like that that make me question. I'm like, was he bad this whole time? <laughs> and then like he just kind of hit it like he just kind of broken clock thing like he in the moment he was right on these couple things because there's certainly other ones i look at i'm like oh boy but hollyweed is truly like it's like the worst version of him because it's like it's just super wordy dialogue but it's with like performers who can't even like do it any service so it just feels like if you even try and like i was high watching i was like no having a panic (laughs) attack from all this talk like please Oh no, that's the ultimate test. Yeah. What uh what are your some of your favorite Mallrats moments? Oh my god. I mean, I love the uh when they talk about their plan to bring down the stage. Yeah. Um <laughs> where He's just funny, man. Yeah. Those are just I mean, so something funny. about him. He cracks me up. Uh I love that. I love um God, the <laughs> the stink palm scene I really yeah. loved. It was um, so dumb and over the top. So dumb. And again, me being, you know, 12 at the time being like, yeah, right. that's a, that's a thing you can do in real life. That's what's, that's what's sort of tough about a Kevin Smith film. There are adults who will watch it and be like, oh, this is great comedy. Yeah. On the other side of that are young kids who are like, this is a blueprint for life. Uh-huh. Like I will yeah. dig in my ass and <laughs> shake someone's hand. Cause I don't like them. I could never bring myself to do it because it's just like the yeah. thought of it. Cause then it's on your hand too. Yeah. But that did kick off a long run of me eating chocolate covered pretzels. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. It's like so weird. Like I took on these things that Brody did as like parts of who I was as a person. Uh-huh. Like That's I funny. only ate chocolate covered pretzels for a while. Like if seven 11, coming out i got a bag of flips or whatever at the time (laughs) and like trying to drink out of the smallest paper cup like it was a cool thing to do um so in a way like i'm kind of mad at kevin smith because he kind of ruined my brain um but yeah like i love that moment um at the time like i wasn't smoking weed because i was young but Mm -hmm. i was like oh this is this is interesting like the power of weed as like some magic tool that only jay and silent bob (laughs) can deploy for their own needs um those are really awesome too. Um, there was a lot more slapstick in it than I remembered when I watched it today. Yeah, uh, kind of really silly stuff that I think was his. You know, I think he was kind of throwing the whole kitchen sink in there. He was like, "I'll do some Three Stooges shit." Yeah, uh, like the scene with him crashing through the the dressing room door was very silly slapstick, and the scene where he's 
he's the you know he's going after uh lafleur with a sock full of quarters yeah. and the kid rolls his little <laughs> skate out there <laughs> it's just really silly kind of fun stuff that you know i think jay and silent bob especially his characters there was just something about him that you liked and it was fun seeing them outside of the clerk's world yeah and i think this is the film that really made them yeah the, it as much as like Jason Lee and Shannon Doherty and like Claire Forlani with these big actors right. are in them. This was the reason like I really watched the film was for Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. Um, and I would so many lines like when they're talking to Ethan Suppley, the whole Ethan Suppley magic eye arc right. is like one of my favorite things too. Like I just love his reactions to things like, when he yells at the kids and ruining the Easter, he's like, there is no Easter bunny yeah. <laughs> over there. That's just a guy in a suit or just well, when they beat up the Easter bunny too. Yeah. This is for Brody. This is for Brody. <laughs> the kids jump in. It's oh, just like, man. So, it is such a mess. Um, but they were, and I think, uh, the, but the reason I will say this with the Ethan Subley thing, I remember as a kid, I could not for the life of me ever get one of those magic eye things to work. Just cut, oh, really? Didn't, I didn't understand what I had to do. Everyone's like, just don't focus your eyes. When yeah. you're 10, I don't know what that means. Sure, like, exactly. Like, close my <laughs> eyes? I don't I don't have, like, the sort of coordination to be able to, like, sort of understand it. And I remember uh-huh. getting so mad because kids would see it. And I was like, so I also d- just, Identified Ethan Suppley, <laughs> I loved it. I was like, I get it, man. It's bullshit. Is it a schooner or a sailboat? Who gives a fuck? Have you still never seen a Magic Eye thing successfully? No. I've like, oh no! I've not even tried, and it's to the. It's like one of those weird secret failures that, like, you right. know, I'm sure, like, I'll have a grandkid be like, "Dad, Grandpa, look at this! Right, right. What, is, what is that? A magic eye book? Get this fucking well, filth away from me!" Luckily, that uh, that stuff sort of went away. It had its moment, and I think it was yeah. like the mid '90s was sort of at its peak. Yeah, but that was like peak <laughs> peak mall stuff too. Like, so I just love those things that were really sort of implanted there. Um, and I just like, the, again, the things I learned to say, like from mm-hmm. this, like, I hope your ca- pants get caught in a bloodbath ensues. I right. didn't know how to use the word ensue <laughs> properly until uh-huh. that line where Brody is watching this kid tug at an adult's leg while sitting on an escalator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's just so, he's screaming at a kid, I hope your pants get caught in a bloodbath ensues. And I was oh, like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, he's is- always mistreating children, Kevin Smith, in yeah, his movies. Absolutely. Until he became a dad. Right. And then mistreated them by being like, okay, your name is Harley Quinn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. That is his daughter's name, yeah. right? That's pretty funny. I do have a lot of respect for his his devotion to his family. I think he seems like a good dad. And Yeah. Uh, He's always had, had his kids in his films. His wife was even in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah, that's right. And I remember that's that was right. like, again, being such a fanboy. I was like, whoa. Yeah. She's not even a performer and she's in it. I'm like that's yeah. Well, power. he was like, none of my friends ever were either, so why not? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> now, is he still putting some of the those guys in these movies? I haven't kept up lately. I feel like I saw Brian O'Halloran in something recently. Oh, really? And I don't know if it was him. I don't know. I mean, it, it again. Like, I've definitely found my way slightly away from sure the, the recent stuff. But like, Jason Muse is in um Hollyweed. Oh, is he? Yeah. So, but I don't know, like, yeah, what happened to, like, the Scott Mosiers of the world? Right. You know, and the Walt Flanagans of the world who, like, end up being character names, but also literally his friends. I'm not sure. I did see, like, an article that was sort of, like, 
mall rats cast where are they now like yeah, years on but it was mostly like the people you know it's like yeah michael rooker is in the guardians of the galaxy yeah. like, right exactly He's sure quite well for himself yeah everyone did pretty well relatively after that yeah oh rooker's great too i forgot uh he was he was funny in this movie yeah and again another person who i just sort of saw as not existing until mall rats so then right. I remember like looking at other films, Michael Rooker like had been in that predated Mallrats and I was, it was so jarring for me. I was like, I thought yeah. that was his debut. Yeah, huh. totally. He was the, the <laughs> truth or date asshole. Yeah. That showed his ass. Yeah. Quite literally. <laughs> and you're like, what was that? F-? Again, there's like so many of these weird slapstick moments that are like head scratchers. Like I get it when yeah. she's like, you're being an ass TS. And then it's cut to him and he's falling out of his towel. You see his ass. But like, right, right. even like Ivana, the fortune teller who had the third oh, nipple, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> the bit at the end where she reveals it's like a prosthetic third nipple and then puts yeah. it in her mouth like it's chewing yeah. gum. I'm like, <laughs> it's very weird. Who was that? It did. Was that directed or was that improv? Like, I who? don't know, man. That's an in the moment thing. It felt like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was pretty funny. I forgot about all <laughs> that like stuff. A couple head scratchers there, but I'm like, yeah, yeah whatever. she this was in. Was uh the threes company she was one of the sort of later threes company uh suzanne summer replacements i think oh that oh, okay that makes sense i can't remember her name but she was one of the roommates later on kind of when the show Priscilla barnes i think right is her. yeah after she had hit hit the peak i forgot about the third nipple thing until today yeah uh it totally had like wiped that from my memory and it, and it was I like such that. a 80s like you know type movie that kevin smith probably watched when he was younger because like there was uh-huh. like you gotta have bare breasts in it for some reason oh, sure like you yeah. know joey lauren adams whether she's changing or this third yeah. nippled fortune teller <laughs> like yeah <laughs> very funny uh well dude i think this was i think we did it i think it was a lot of fun uh it, it, we did what i hoped we would do which was uh get into sort of the kevin smith thing a little bit um even more so than mall rats because he is someone who is larger than his film output mm-hmm yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's like it, almost to the point where, like I said, it, it makes me question like what I'm trying to like weigh his impact. Is it the films or like that he, for him being as prominent at the time, like what that signaled to other people as what a filmmaker a could be. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, there's a interesting, interesting discussion for sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll meet him one day. I've gotten the uh, Kevin Smith look like things so many times over the years that I'd like to think that at some point someone has said you look like Chuck from stuff you should know, but maybe. I think at this point it's safe to say that that, that pendulum may swing to your direction pretty soon, for sure. <laughs> oh, I'm not looking for that. But hey, if you say so, I don't know. Or here, what we what we need is a stuff you should know hockey jersey for you to wear. Oh no. And then we'll start no way. <laughs> we'll start reverse engineering it. And like every picture I ever take, I'll just go like this. Yeah. Because he has that same look in all his exactly, photos. which is exactly the the face he had when I forced him to take that selfie at Comic Con. Oh, oh, you got a selfie? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I honestly, like I said, I was so obsessed with him when I was younger, and yeah. I had not really, and I completely fell off in being like following his work. But when I saw him, I immediately just like I, I, you know, I time traveled to me being a kid, yeah. and I'm like, that's so cool. Oh, it's me and Kevin Smith here. Like, there's that photo. Oh, nice, man. <laughs> and I've, and I'm, I'm glad it was a uh, and good I have, exchange. And I have a goofy smile because I'm just so like nervous. Like it's it the doesn't worst, even look like you. I know. It's the worst <laughs> smile I've ever had. 
because part of me couldn't believe I was like, I had arrived and 13, 12 year old miles had like reached the summit of his fandom. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet, man. Maybe you'll hear this. You never know. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Miles. Where can people follow you aside from listening to the Daily Zeitgeist, oh, which they should be doing? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, you can find me on uh, my other. Po- I have another podcast called 420 Day Fiance, uh, where I just talk about 90 Day Fiance, one of my favorite reality shows. Uh, oh, okay, and yeah, you can find me on social media: Twitter, Instagram at Miles of Gray, G R A Y. And yeah, like you're saying, Chuck, if uh, people want to hear me talk news in a funny way and politics yes. and culture and all that please check out the daily zeitgeist right here same network truly really great show maybe you'll have me on one day yeah we gotta have you on <laughs> if the other time I, we've had josh on and he like didn't have a camera on it was a very jar like one of the last times we had him i think maybe though yeah the you've had first, josh a few times I think you haven't now. had me on once we're gonna write this wrong i don't know what happened <laughs> i don't know what happened but i'm gonna oh, hold you right. to this now all right i'm, I'm into it okay all right We'll do a tradesies. I'll you have me on Daily Zeitgeist, and I'll get uh, Jack on for Pulp Fiction. Maybe he's waiting on that. He was because I told him today. I was like, I'm about to do movie Chris. He's like, Oh, what? <laughs> I'll send him an email because I'm still holding Pulp Fiction for him. Like someone even asked, I was like, I can't do it. Yeah. Jack claimed it. Oh yeah, he's what a year for movies. Ninety five. Huh. Uh, all right, man. This is a lot of fun, and uh, it was good talking to you. Yeah, likewise, man. Take care. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.